Hello, and welcome to the Signpost Inn podcast, a space at life's crossroads to connect with God and find direction. Pour yourself a drink, grab a seat, and join us on the back porch for a friendly conversation about Christian prayer, spirituality, and faithful theology. My name's Matt. And I'm Brandon, and we're really glad you're here. The Signpost Inn podcast is brought to you by the Signpost Inn Ministry, where we offer spiritual direction, retreats and sabbatical residencies, and lots of resources and training. You can find out more about what we do and support us by visiting signpostin.org. On this episode, we're going to keep talking about the false self. But before we do that, I want to let you know that we have several group prayer retreats coming up this fall. Do you want to learn to pray better? Do you need time away from all the noise? Time to just be with God? To listen and to be heard yourself? Then we invite you to join us in the beautiful Colorado mountains for a weekend of solitude, prayer, and encouragement. These aren't your normal retreats. We don't have a program and we don't have curriculum. Instead, we offer support and guidance as you spend lots of time alone with God. So whether you're a veteran or a beginner, you'll find that our contemplative prayer retreats are for you. Come away with Jesus and rest a while. Sign up at signpostin.org. And now, here's the show. Hey Matt, good to see you on the back porch. You too, Brandon. So last time we talked about the false self and we finished by saying we need to talk about it some more. Yeah. And so I wanted to bring a quote that summarizes what we were talking about pretty well in my mind. It's from a book called The New Seeds of Contemplation by Thomas Merton. And here's how he defines the false self. And I'm just going to read some stuff out of it to give us a little background and hopefully make it a little clearer what we were talking about, because our goal today is to talk about how do you get out of this? So here's what he says the false self is. He says that the false self is the man I want myself to be, but who cannot exist because God does not know anything about him. He says my false and the, so it's my false and private self. That's the one who wants to exist outside the reach of God's will and God's love, outside of reality and outside of life. And such a self cannot help but be an illusion. Um, interestingly, he also says this. He says, all sin starts from the assumption that my false self exists, that only my own egocentric desires exist. And that that's the fundamental reality of life to which everything else in the universe is ordered. So he says, I use up my life in the desire for pleasures and the thirst for experiences, for power, honor, knowledge, and love to clothe this false self and construct its nothingness into something objectively real. Wow. There's a lot there. There's a lot there. And I think that summarizes kind of like we were bouncing around trying to explain this, but I... That quote summarizes for me exactly what we were saying. What the false self is, is me trying to make myself something without reference to God. Hmm. We can go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, and we can use another term for the false self, which is uh, original sin. Okay. It is, it is all of my efforts that I am born with because of sin to try to define myself rather than allow myself to be made and defined by God. And so we grasp after power. We grasp after pleasure. We grasp after all the things that we think will give us significance or safety in this world that aren't God. 
Mm -hmm. Another way to think of it is it's idol worship. Sure. We're, we're trying to, which is what sin is. We're, we're making anything but God, our God. Yeah. And the reason it's false is because it, it by, by definition, in a sense, cannot exist if it's not made by God, right? We can't create something out of nothing. Only God can do that. Right. And we can't define ourselves either. We don't have that authority. Mm. But this is the nature of our sin. We're all trying to say, I want to be the one that defines myself. So we come into this world bearing that sin. It is driven by a fear that God doesn't actually love us. Right back to the Garden of Evil. E Garden of Evil. Garden. Right back to the Garden of Eden. Did God really say, does he actually have your best interest in mind? Mm. Is he actually going to pro provide for you? Or is this tree that you're not supposed to eat of, as the Satan implies, really good for you and God just doesn't want you to have something good because God is a bad guy? And so the sin was, you know what? We're not going to trust God. We think God has some bad motive for telling us not to do this. So we're going to go ahead and take matters into our own hand, and we're going to decide for ourselves what we should be and what will give us safety and security, and we're going to eat the eat from the tree. Hmm. So to continue with Merton for a minute, he says this, what we need to be saved from then is this false self. We must be saved from the immersion in the sea of lies and passions, which is called the world. What we must be saved above all from is that abyss of confusion and absurdity, which is our own worldly self. So what we need to be rescued from is the, the worldview and the life that says, hmm. I have to secure myself. Hmm. Yeah. I have to secure my value. I have to grasp after pleasures or whatever mm -hmm. in order to be happy. Mm -hmm. And we need to learn to live our lives to God. We can't save ourselves. That would just be more of the false self to think right. my behavior, my external behavior or any other behavior is somehow going to establish God's love. That's what we were talking about last time, right? Like the, the greatest expression of this false self is some action on my part of any kind is going to be the thing that causes God to respond with love. Hmm. Right. So obviously the way out of the false self, the way out of the mistaken illusion and lies of the world cannot be an assertion of more self-will. I can't be like, I just have to try harder because right. that's just an expression of the same old lie. Mm-hmm. And this is where prayer comes in. Okay. Um, in what way? Like, like, elaborate on that a little bit more. Well, two things. First, this is actually where, let's start right at the beginning, because we're, we're sort of passing over the most important part. This is where Christ comes in and does the work for us, right? The first movement that saves us from our false self is not our movement at all, but God's movement on the cross and then personally to us, preaching the gospel to us. Mm-hmm. That we, that we don't, you know, what is the gospel other than the message, the good news that you don't have to do anything to earn God's love. Mm -hmm. That is the truth about reality. That's what we were talking about last time in different ways. But the gospel says 
your whole way of thinking about reality, I have to secure myself, I have to secure my value, I have to secure my safety, Mm -hmm. is a lie. God has already done it for you. Right? Before you ever tried, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Before you ever did anything to earn it, the good news of the gospel is you're safe, you're secure, you're valuable, you're loved, all those things, all the things you want yeah. are given to you gracefully without any requirement by Christ. Yeah. This is why theologians say all prayer begins with God speaking to me. Interesting. Thomas Merton says prayer is not gaining something from God but it starts with what we already have from God. Okay. And I think it's Luther who says, it's not prayer that makes a man holy, but only a holy man can pray. Mm. So the only person who has access to the Father and can actually pray is the person who's been loved and saved and washed by Jesus Christ first. Well, and, and that, that exactly mirrors what we've already talked about once, about prayer being a response to, to God's presence. Yeah. So so you're not here talking about the salvation experience, the the moment where a person may become born again because we're we're almost assuming that that's already happened that the you know like Luther is saying the holy man is is coming to God um or or in prayer responding to God because he's already been saved. So so yeah. we're we're talking more about um a sanctification experience than than we are talking about a salvation experience. Right. Right. So, uh, of course, we have to include, uh, we have to, we have to talk about the justification experience as the beginning of our life with Christ that is entirely gracious without us participating in any way whatsoever. God comes to us. God speaks to us. Now, that doesn't mean in this life that we are suddenly without struggle with the false self, mm-hmm. right? This is, throughout Scripture, we find out that we still have the old man. The the old sin nature still clings to us. Yeah. But what we are told in Scripture, take uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for example, what we're told is, even though we still have that sin nature, that old man, we no longer regard anyone according to the flesh because as as beloved children of Jesus we have a new nature a new identity and that is who we really are and this is where it, these all of this connects in other words my false self is i have to secure myself my new identity is i'm secured by christ right well i think the go ahead well the big secret is that the process of sanctification is not a process of lots of activity to now live up to that. It is a process of living more into it, resting more into it. Let me finish with one quote from Thomas Merton. He says, When I consent to the will and the mercy of God as it comes to me in the events of life, appealing to my inner self and awakening my faith, I break through the superficial exterior appearances that form my routine vision of the world and of my own self, and I find myself in the presence of hidden majesty. Hmm. 
super heady quote, which means this. Hmm. The Christian life is a life of increasing faith in the gracious love of God, not a life of increasing effort to earn that. Let me try to tie it into a nice bow, and then we can maybe have a discussion sure, about okay, it. Okay, go ahead. The false self thinks I have to do it, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. The gospel sells, says God did it. Mm-hmm. The life of a Christian is learning to trust more and more and more that God does everything and that I have nothing to accomplish. I only have to rest in God's love. Mm. The work, the sanctification work of a Christian life is the work of increasing passivity to God's love. That's prayer. Okay. That's the role of prayer. Prayer is learning to, the role of spiritual disciplines. Yeah. Learning to trust God more and more and more. Well, and and I'm really tracking with you there because I feel like one of the things that I've learned, especially now in, in my later adult years here, of much more of my spiritual walk is more dependent on me just resting and trusting in God than doing other things. And and so I'm tracking with that. But there might be some people who are listening to this that are going to have a, a a bristling reaction against the word passivity, being passive with God, because that sounds like inactivity. That sounds like doing nothing. That sounds right. and and doing nothing means it's not valuable, right? Doing nothing means, well, if it, if it's worth pursuing then surely it should you should it should be pursued. So I mean is is this just a semantic issue that we're wrestling with? What what would you say to people who are uh kind of have a reaction to that? That's a really good question. Our dislike of passivity comes from the space of our false self. Because remember the false self is the self-made person. I want to I want to be the responsible party, the active party that makes me valuable. But in reality, all things, including me, only get and only can get our value from the activity of God. Just like we can only get our existence from God, we cannot establish our own existence. Right. So think of what what makes a tree valuable. Not to me, right? There's the what makes a tree, a, let's put it in a different category, not value, because value is subjective in some sense, right? The tree is only valuable insofar as I have use for it. Let's ask what makes a tree good? What makes that a good tree? Okay. What's it doing? Being a tree? Being a tree, exactly. Which, you know, it, it does what a tree does. It, I guess, processes carbon dioxide into oxygen <laughs> and takes up nutrients out of the soil. And frankly, sits there and soaks up the sun. I mean, that's a good tree. Mm -hmm. Just so, what is it that it makes a good human? You know, theologians have had all kinds of different ways of talking about this. The Westminster Catechism says that our purpose in life is to uh, love God and enjoy him forever. Our difficulty is we have turned those into our initial responses rather, or excuse me, our initial actions rather than our receptive responses. Okay. What does it mean to love someone properly? Specifically, what does it mean to love God? Well, we love because he first loved us. Mm -hmm. So it is receptive. Like the greatest thing I can do, the most wonderful praise of God that I can do 
is acknowledge that my life and my being come from him. Yeah. To, to be grateful for that. Yeah. And it is so funny that we make gratefulness into something that earns the gift with God, which wouldn't, we would never do in a real relationship. Right. Right. If I gave you keys to the, for a Ferrari and said, Hey, this is yours. I, I bought it for you. Would you be grateful? Sure. Yeah. Of, yeah, of course you would be. I mean, I suppose unless you didn't like Ferraris, but, um, you know, I'd want a different kind of supercar, but that's just cause I'm a snob. But <laughs> if you get, I mean, I think I'd be grateful anyway, right? If you gave me a keys to a Ferrari, of course I'd be grateful. What would it look like? You'd, you'd be like, Oh, thank you. This is awesome. You'd jump in the car and you'd drive away. You wouldn't like now need to go do some special thing in order to earn the Ferrari. Right. Right. And, and let me just use that analogy to unpack what prayer looks like, what, what we're doing in prayer. And especially, I'm going to introduce a word here, contemplative prayer, because that's something that we do at Signpost Inn and talk about a lot. Right. But what it is, is in order to have that kind of gratefulness, the kind that is a free and natural response that does not earn anything, it requires the what we would call the contemplative stance. All that means is seeing reality as it really is escaping that false self world of lies Mm -hmm. for to make it really practical. If I give you the keys to a Ferrari and you think what's his ulterior motive, what's he trying to get out of me? Mm. Yeah. How does this obligate me to him? Mm. Then you're not going to be grateful. And if the person giving you the keys to the Ferrari is actually a jerk who is doing it in order to obligate you, then you'd be right not to be grateful. You would actually say, nope, I don't want that gift Mm. because that's going to make me a slave because now you've given me something so big that I can never repay. Now I'm obligated to you forever. And that's a lot of the ways that sinful human beings do give gifts. Sure. Yeah. If on the other hand, the person giving you that Ferrari is genuinely giving it to you, no strings attached. It's an actual gift, right? They hand you the keys and they love you and they say, I just want you to have something totally amazing. And I don't care whether you ever pay it back or not because I don't. that's not why I'm giving it to you. I'm giving it to you purely because I love you and I want you to enjoy it. You will, if that's who that person really is and you believe that's who that person really is, you will actually have... You won't even be thinking about, am I grateful? Right. You will be grateful. Right. And what will you do? You'll jump in the Ferrari and drive away and have a blast. Yeah. So here's the problem we have with God. Our sinful false self, which wants to secure itself, can only think of everyone, including God, in terms of the way I would behave, which is if I gave you something nice, it'd be to obligate you and enslave you. Right. So God must be doing the same thing. Yeah. You know, it. This what you're talking about actually makes me think of the parable of the prodigal son. You know, there's been some really great um, stuff written by some phenomenal Christian writers um, over the years. Obviously, we've talked about Henry Nouwen's book on the painting of the prodigal son, but I'm also thinking of Tim Keller's book called The Prodigal God. But in that story, right, you have the prodigal son who literally tells his father to his face, I basically just want your stuff and I don't want you and leaves. Yeah. And yet, you know, we, we all know the story. He, he goes, he 
you know, crashes and burns and he comes back and he's, he's welcomed back with open arms and re- reinstated as a, as a son and an heir. And, and it's a beautiful story. And then the, the older son comes and he's indignant. But what, what is revealed in all of that is that both sons were essentially treating the father the same. He, the, yeah. the only reason the son, the oldest, older son was being obedient and being submissive and serving his father was for the stuff it, it yeah. was. And so as you're talking about this, I can't help but think about that is, I mean, that's the position we're in with God. Right. So here's the question that we're all, that I hear people asking all the time. What does God want out of me? How do I obey God? Stuff like that, right? Like what's my responsibility? Mm-hmm. Essentially that betrays that we are still stuck in thinking of God in the sinful way. We're still thinking that God is trying to buy us off, obligate us, enslave us, and use us in some way, rather than understanding, seeing God in as he really is, as revealed in his word, Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. which is the gracious, gift-giving lover of life. Mm-hmm. When God, when Jesus, who is God, gives gifts— they have no strings attached. They are completely motivated by love and love alone. Right. What is the process of sanctification? How do I become more moral? Wrong question in some sense. Yeah. Because as long as you're saying, you know what this whole thing is all about, it's about God making me more moral and having to work harder, then you're still thinking of God as the guy who gives the Ferrari because he wants to enslave you. And you'll never, you know, the Ferrari here represents the good life, the life of joy and happiness, which would, this is what God actually wants for us. But if he gives it to us selfishly, then we never get into it Mm. because it's only obligation. But if you shift your view of God, if you understand God as he really is, God is only interested in my good with zero reference to his, what he gets out of it because he doesn't need anything out of it. Right. Then Everything God gives me is pure grace, and my life is a life of learning to see God that way. Mm. So prayer, contemplative prayer especially, is learning to receive the reality, like see it as it really is, especially see God as he really is. And the more we do that, the more we see God as loving, totally freely loving, and the more we actually experience God that way, because it's not just a matter of insight, it's a matter of practicing my, letting my emotions believe that my body accept that and my heart accept that and consenting to it. Well then quote unquote, good works flow naturally. Yeah. And they're not even good works anymore because they're not aimed at some ulterior motive of trying to earn God's favor. Now they're just jumping in the Ferrari and going for a fun drive Mm. because God, the one who gives them to me, has no bad motives behind giving them to me. He only wants me to be happy and joyful and with him. Yeah. I'm tracking with everything you're saying and and I'm in I'm in a total agreement here, but I can it's almost in the back of my mind I can hear uh, there might be somebody out there or there's even been people I've known in my life that would respond to what you're saying by saying, "Well, that sounds too easy. That means there's nothing Good. required of of me. That's just too easy. That can't be the Christian life." What I mean, what do you say to somebody who's like, well, if if that's all the Christian life is, well, then what does make me a better person? What's to keep a person from just, you know, exploiting God? So 
in Romans five and six, what what people often miss is what Paul's doing when he answers those two famous questions, which is essentially the question you're asking right here, right? This this person is saying, "Shall I go on sinning?" Mm-hmm. Here's what you need to notice first: when Paul explains the gospel in chapters four and five, he is so clear. Let, let me just read what he says right at the end of chapter five. He says, so then, as through one trespass, there is condemnation for everyone. So also through one righteous act, there is justification leading to life for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So also through one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The law came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All right, so it's real clear. The more sin that happens, the more grace abounds, Hmm. right? And here's the weirdest part about that statement. You realize that what God is saying is he's not afraid of sin. He's not disgusted so much that he walks away. He's never going to be like, oh, that's too much for me. Hmm. The the image is actually, yeah, you could multiply sin to infinity and grace has already beat it to that infinity and gone to another one. Hmm. What? <laughs> here's the thing. What does Paul think you're going to say next? Here's the very next verse. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? The thing you need to notice is that Paul thinks that the correct question to his explication of the gospel, which he just spent four chapters doing, is, wait a minute, that sounds too easy. Yeah. So if you're asking that question, yes, you've got it. That is the actual gospel. (laughs) Yes. Paul thinks you are going to wonder, wait a minute, it seems so easy. Now listen to his answer. Absolutely not. We should not continue to sin so that grace may multiply. Why? Um, Is his answer going to be, oh, you know, because there's a limit to grace? Because finally you're going to find the spot where God says no more? Nope. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so too we may walk in the newness of life. Okay. His answer is not, no, you should stop. You need to not sin because eventually God's not going to give you the grace. His answer is, hey, dummy, (laughs) this is the wrong, you have the wrong way. You have the false self way of thinking about things. You're thinking in terms of merit and grace being merited. I'm telling you, grace is so abundant and so full, I just want you to walk in it. What you've been gracefully saved from is death. So his answer is not, let me reintroduce limits. His answer is, hey, dummy, don't go back to the grave. Yeah. He keeps going and and the whole thing happens all over again because he says the gospel all over again. And then again, he expects you to ask the question, wait, 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 wait. So are you saying I can sin? Here's my point, simply. If somebody is telling you the gospel, the good news, and your response is not, that sounds too easy. You mean I don't have to do anything? Then you haven't heard the gospel. You've heard a false gospel. Hmm. 
Wow. Because that is the actual answer. God does it all. Right. And our job is to receive it, period. Right. Well, and um, one of the, you know, speaking of Paul, um, since we began this ep- this episode, I could, I've had in the back of my mind replaying is Ephesians chapter 4, when it when Paul says, put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And that yeah. and he's he's essentially speaking to what we began this episode with was talking about the false self. Um mm-hmm. it, so I mean, I guess Paul is saying um what, where we're talking about the false self, he's talking about the old self. Right. Two different words for the same thing. Yeah. The false self is the desire and the attempt to, to be my own God, to make myself valuable. The true self is the one given by God purely by grace. Hmm. And the Christian life is an increasing trust that that, that God gives me my, that God gives me everything. Hmm. Well, that sounds easy. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think we have to talk about that. You're right. There is a whole other thing to talk about with it. It is easy, and precisely because it's the easiest thing in the world, it's the hardest thing for our, for us to do because we're so trapped in the false self. Yeah. But if I may, I would like to close this episode with one of my favorite prayers. Yeah, let's do that. Here's how it goes. Father... I abandon myself into your hands. Do with me what you will. Whatever you may do, I thank you. I am ready for all. I accept all. Let only your will be done in me and in all your creatures. I wish no more than this, O Lord. Into your hands I commend my soul. I offer it to you with all the love of my heart. For I love you, Lord, and so need to give myself to surrender myself into your hands without reserve and with boundless confidence. I consent to your divine presence and action in my life, for you are my Father. Amen. Amen. Yeah, that's awesome. That's beautiful. Well, I think you're right, Brandon. I think that's a perfect way to close. Uh, Listeners, we want to thank you for joining us here on the back porch. And until next time, may Christ go with you wherever the road takes you. Amen. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to visit us at signpostn.org. While you're there, sign up for our e-newsletter and we'll send you a free e-book. Also, a big thanks to all of our supporters. Signpost N is a 501c3 nonprofit ministry, and we exist only because of our generous donors who make everything we do possible. Please consider supporting us with your recurring donation. Visit signpostn.org slash donate.